and welcome to Ireland Creates. I'm your host, Ashling O'Rourke, and this week we're celebrating. I'm delighted to say we've reached 1,000 listens, and I'd like to thank each and every one of you for tuning in each week. While the majority of you are listening from Ireland, it's been great to see just how international the audience has become. According to the analytics behind the podcast, a significant number of you are from North America, that's the US and Canada, while some of you are in New Zealand and Lithuania, as far away as Japan, Mexico, Brazil and even Thailand. One of the things I love about creating this podcast is the community that's building up around it, from those of you who message me to say you listen each week to the fabulous guests I get to speak with for each episode. I thoroughly enjoy hearing from you, so please do feel free to message me through my website, ashlingorourke.com or on Instagram at ashlingmakesstories. In podcasting terms, reaching a thousand listens is a fantastic milestone to reach. And so I'd like to encourage you to become a patron of Ireland Creates by backing the podcast on patreon.com forward slash Ireland Creates. I want to keep the podcast as accessible as possible, so I will keep publishing on your favourite platform. However, making the podcast does come with costs. And so that's why I've joined Patreon and will be adding some exclusive content there over the coming weeks and months. You can back the podcast for as much as you would like each month for as little as the price of a cup of coffee or more. It's up to you. But I hope you will help the podcast grow so that we can continue to spread the word about Ireland's amazing storytellers across all art forms. And now on to today's guest, a man who has become known for painting in public, whether it's rooftops, city streets or even botanical gardens, Jared Byrne likes to bring his paintbrush and easel and paint on location. After starting off his career as a tradesman, a near-death experience sparked his decision to become a full-time artist. It was fantastic to catch up with Jared and I hope you enjoy his story. Hi, my name is uh, Gerard Byrne. I'm an artist, uh, preferably working in uh, oils and charcoal. Um, so painting for 30 years plus uh, full time. But I don't, I've given up counting now how many exhibitions I had. It's not a brag, it's just one of those things you stop counting after I think about 10. <laughs> um, and solo shows I, I, are kind of my main interest, yeah, although I do or I have done a couple of um, group shows, prefer uh, the solo shows myself. And um, so working on it full time every day, every week, it's my life. That's it. Well, Jared Byrne, welcome to Ireland Creates, the podcast about Ireland's amazing storytellers across all art forms. Jared, thank you for, for joining us on this week's episode of the podcast. You're known now as, as you said, a full-time working artist. You uh, Paint, I think, is what you're most known for in, in, in oils. Yeah. But that wasn't always the case you you didn't necessarily go straight into painting so take me back what was the young Jared Byrne up to well the young Jared Byrne uh, came from sort of working class background you know with a big family six six uh, siblings what do you call them you know so brothers and sisters and we um 
you know, we all had our own ways about us, but it was kind of like, you know, the, the, the plan was to get a good job at the end of the day. And uh, going to our college wouldn't be kind of one of those things that, you know, you would think somebody could uh, afford not having a, the background behind them to support them that a lot of sort of wealthier people might have. So it was a case of, uh, for me, it was, you know, get, grow up, get a trade and get working. Uh, that was kind of the plan and, you know, good plan. So, um, but as, as a young kid, I actually wasn't very good at school. I had dyslexia, so I had a couple of teachers that kind of let me down a bit in some levels. Um, so I struggled from, from all the way through my school years, uh, which led me to kind of, you know, basically not enjoy schooling at all. Um, so I left school at a very early age, you know, 14. But when I was, when I was very young, uh, I used to like to paint you know, as most kids do, but they used to, people used to say I had a good flair to it. I kind of was good at what I did. Unlike, you know, other subjects where I wasn't very good at, so I kind of felt maybe that's, that's the way for me to go. Um, so my parents could see that I had an interest in it. So they, you know, went, done their best to try and get me into art school. They said maybe to make a stark sacrifice with me in the sense of, you know, that, that, that I had this keen interest. But at that stage, I was too young. Yeah, even though they, they, they brought the, the piece of art I was doing to the college, they, they admired them and said to it that there was potential there, but I was too young. So it was a case of uh, come back when you're older. But then probably having the leave insert, which I wasn't going to have. So basically at the art college wasn't going to be on my, on my Victor. That must have been frustrating. Yeah, I suppose as a, as a young fellow, yeah, I would like him to. I mean, I, I went to the art college and asked him when I was a bit older, could I go? And they were like, well, you haven't got your leaving cert. You know, maybe you come back when you're as a mature student or something. Like and, um, the, you know, I remember at the interview, they were saying to me, um, so how are you going to uh, pay for your education while you're in here? And I had to thought I had it all figured out. I said, you know, the great answer is I'm going to work really hard. Um, at what I do in the college here, but I also have a spare time job like working at different things. And they were saying, no, that won't do. You have to give this all your attention and all, all basically put yourself into it, surround yourself with art and only art. And that wasn't uh, really what I could do. So I, I, I basically gave them the wrong answer, which was a bit disappointing at the time. But uh, that's, that's, that's history anyway. So you ended up going down the, the trade route. What was your chosen trade? Yeah. Well, I believe it or not, when I left school first, I actually got a job in Cleary's and that was as a porter uh, driving a lift. And it, it was a, a job with lots of ups and downs, excuse the pun, <laughs> but I really enjoyed it. It was, it was a fabulous job. I worked with some great people and I, I could have stayed there for the rest of my life in my head, you know. But I felt I'd never get, you know, get kind of comfortable in it and kind of like, you know, I'll always have, uh, you know, a need for something better. I, I didn't like having a boss. I want to be my, my own boss and I mm -hmm. want to be kind of in control of my destiny. So I says, as much as I love it, I'll have to leave. But the strange thing was that what used to happen was the women that would come into the lift, the older women usually would say, I'd open the lift and invite them in and get to know them over, you know, a period of time. The same people coming through the store nearly every day. And then they'd say, oh, you're too nice for young flip. Uh, you know, you should be working on this lift. You should have a trade or something like that. So they come back the next day and say, you know, my, my uh, son has a company and he's offering you a job. 
So I left Cleary's, I think, four or five times, and I got a job as apprentice carpenter, apprentice plumber. <laughs> and each job I was lasting about six weeks to, one of them was a butcher, and I was the worst. I think I lasted about four days. <laughs> Um, so I, I was kind of picking trades, and I was mm -hmm. not really the, the trade I want as electrician. But to, to be an electrician, you need the qualifications to get into it. You know, you need a, you're leaving cert into cert, you know, with good marks. And uh, so I just that's off to the rector. So anyway, this job was advertised as an apprentice welder in a company, and I went for that interview. And in the interview, they asked me the trick questions. So what you really want to do, you know? Uh, and I says I'd really like to be an electrician. You know, I didn't say an artist because that wasn't mm. that was not, not the right place to say that. <laughs> anyway, I want to be an electrician. And they says, well, why don't I apply for a job as an electrician? And I says, well, I, I haven't got the qualifications for, you know. And uh, they says, um, okay. You know, so I didn't hear anything from them. And I says, I really messed up on that interview. And she says, I really want to be a welder. And gave them some excuse. But to my surprise, about six months passed. And I got a knock at the door. And there was a guy there. He says, you have to start work on Monday morning. And I turned up on the Monday and uh, thought I was starting as a as a welder, and to my surprise, I was actually starting as an electrician. Wow! So, was, so somebody gave me the break, you know. So it was a nice, nice, nice break. Yeah. But at the same time, they said to me, the the managing director of the company he called me and he says, "Looks like this, we're giving you this break, and you have to work really, really hard." Now, having dyslexia is is you know has its negative part too you know in the sense of learning. So I says you know things are stacked against me here. So um, he says so if you if you fail your exams you're out. If you pass them you're in. You know so you're gonna have to work. You know, the exams coming up in a year's time. So anyway, off to college went to Kevin Street and I studied really hard and whatever else, but I was still not giving it my full self. And, uh, you know, as, as young fellas do, you kind of get a bit cocky and whatever else and enjoy their side of life. Failed, failed miserably in my exams and they called me and they, they, they laid me off and I was like, oh, I was off, so upset and disappointed and failed and everything else. Only to uh, find about a month or so later, they rang me up and they said, okay, it's like this, you know, you can have another go at, at this. You know, we, we're going to pay you to go back to college. And you have a, a exams in another few months, so you have to work really hard. Well, I, I worked hard the second time. <laughs> That's almost unheard so, of, like like some random stranger giving you a break not once but twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's I don't know. It was, I suppose I was lucky in a sense, but the um, yeah, it was it was very generous of looking back, and you know, it um, you don't meet too many people in life that give you that break, and like for a big company. Too, you know. Mm. So it was nice, nice to get it. But anyway, I went back and I did the same subject in the daytime. You know, in the daytime, I went in to college at seven or nine in the morning, finished at uh, five in the evening. Very same subjects, and a lot of time with the same uh, tutors, and they were kind of looking at me, going like, "Are you in the class in the daytime?" Like, yeah. But I, I, I needed that to kind of get myself up, up, to, up and running in the sense of my head to, get to remember these things, uh, you know, with, with this dyslexia. You know. But anyway, I ended up passing my exams with a distinctions that time, that time around. And I would say I'm probably the most qualified electrician that I know of, anyway, of every exam you can think of. So I would have become, like, to my own surprise, a good electrician. You know, like it really kind of set me on the, on the track with the education behind me. And which opened the doors up to me to kind of pick and choose jobs. So if I've worked in 
Australia and the outback uh, on averaging settlements, you know, bringing electricity to to them and fixing the generators out there. So it's a very interesting job, like flying electrician mm. yeah, as opposed to a flying doctor. I yeah, worked at the lighthouse service as a lighthouse uh, electrician, uh, what they call an LT, lighthouse technician electrical. And then I worked in, say, Libya, uh, in the up, or in the up, back in Libya, in the desert uh, on the irrigation, uh, you know, and just basically developing the desert in Libya. So interesting jobs. Fascinating. Yeah. It's not, um, yeah. I suppose it's not what, what comes to mind when you think of someone going to become an electrician. You think of, well, the guy that comes to your house when you have a problem or maybe you're building a new house and you need to get it wired. Mm. How did you end up in the outback in Australia? Well, I always wanted, I got, you know, I always wanted to travel. That was one thing, I, you know, because I think it was because of the lack of education I got. I felt that the only education or the, the best education I could get was the best would be to live life to its fullest in the sense of seeing the world, meeting different people, put myself in different situations and a test of my endurance and a test of like building my personality in a way. And I thought that was a real education, you know, that, that's, that's, that was my goal, really. Um, you know, just, you know, go, go where somebody says, don't go, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, so I, I you know, it's, like in Libya, it's the uh, back in the days, there was, a, you know, there was a lot of troubles in, uh, with Gaddafi, you know. And at the time, Gaddafi, I think there was a plane on the runway in London that was grounded, uh, and there was hostages on the plane, and the, all the expats left Libya. There was kind of like talk of civil wars or wars going on, so they all scarpered. So it worked out that with them was all the electricians left. So there was an ad then posted, uh, electricians want to live here, paying extraordinarily well money. Like I would, back then I was getting like $45 an hour, tax free, and this is going back in the 90s, you know, so it was like mm. huge money. So I says, oh, I'll go there, even though it was like, well, you know, it was a danger, you know, like you're, you're going into kind of a war zone and you're going to be, uh, Find it, find it difficult. There's no newspapers, no media. There's it's locked down. There's no drink. There's no girls. You know, I'm a young guy. So it's like, okay, I'll go. <laughs> so anyway, off to Libya. Um, and when I arrived, there was the plane on the runway with the hostages in it. So um, you know, but at the same time, being there and living there and talking to Libyan people, you get a whole different concept in your head, a whole different idea of what you're fed through the propaganda of the West and how much the, the living people seem to love Gaddafi and had great respect for him. So, it's, you know, it's, so those things are part of, you know, being there and experiencing him. But anyway, it's, that's all part of uh, being an electrician and, you know, going, you know, moving forward in time in the sense of how to make that jump into the arts. Mm. Uh, the, story, the story goes that I actually back in Dublin here and I was working and uh, went to work one day, got a bit sloppy, which can happen as an electrician, and I electrocuted myself uh, badly. And okay. I actually, so I got stuck to a panel basically, and I, it was on a building site. Um, and I remember on the day I was, uh, you know, I, I kind of knew, I'd been told long enough, like what's gonna happen when you get a bad electric shock. So I kind of knew it was happening. 
And it was only a matter of time before you basically are dead. You know, so I stuck to this panel. I couldn't get away from it. But, and explain to you when you get an extra shock like that, you basically can't move any muscles. The only thing you move is your eyes and your feet, your toes. And you can't move your arms. You can't scream. You're completely locked. Your legs are locked and everything. Just your feet. So um, That sounds like so my worst at, nightmare. Yeah. So it's kind of like, in, and time, like in those situations, it goes really slow. Yeah. <laughs> So it's like time to stand still. So you have plenty of time to think. You know, it's literally seconds in it. But, but I, I, and this I actually says, I know I'm going to die here today. So I, unless I do something. So I have to break away from the panel. So the only thing that's working is my feet. But when I looked over my shoulder, which I was able to do, my eyes were turning my head. And I said, there's a staircase behind me, which was open. I hadn't got a barricade around it because this is a big site, big uh, skyscraper. You know? And I says, I'm going to go flying down those concrete stairs. I'm going to break a few bones if I survive, you know. Um, that'd be the worst thing, you know, just a few bones broken. Um, so I says, I'll have to, I have to get away from this. So anyway, with the feet, I rocked back and forward, which meant I actually was able to kind of pull away from the board, just from my feet. And then as soon as I let go, what happens is your muscles that you're in spasm react the opposite way. So... I ended up throwing myself over the staircase and hitting the wall on the far side of the room. I was like Batman sort of thing across the room. So I missed the staircase. So I kind of, I was lucky. <laughs> so I, got, I, got, I stood up and brushed myself off and walked away from it with a couple of, you know, marks on my hand, burns. And I says, I'm a lucky man. So I left there and went straight to my parents. You know, I, was, I was young at the time. And I went there and I says, I haven't told you this before. But I tell you now, I love his boat. They were like, Jay's gone crazy. <laughs> you know, so it was kind of like the start of me in a, in a new a new head kind of thing. And I says, really, what, you know, life's too short and, you know, you've got to just move on and kind of do the things you want to do and don't be wasting time and, you know, just, just do it. So I went back to my job that afternoon and I said to my boss, I want to uh, take a leave of absence. And he says... Um, for what? And I said, I want to paint. And he looked at me, he goes, you paint? You know, I said, yeah, I want to become an artist. And he goes, go back to work and stop annoying me. And I said, well, if I don't get leave of absence, I'm going to leave. And his reply was, you never leave here. You're too well paid and you're too cushy in number. And he was writing both counts. Yeah. And I says, uh, no, this is important to me. So if you can't give me, or you won't give me the leave of absence, uh, I'm leaving. So he said, no, I'm not giving it to you. So I says, okay, I'm handing my notes in here now. And he was kind of quite surprised, but I kind of, this was, this was, it was now or never. So anyway, you know, through my life, I always found that things kind of present themselves to me uh, at the right time. It's kind of weird in some ways, kind of a strange life like that. So I went back to my parents, which I don't usually do, you know, go to my parents in the daytime. And I went back and mother was chatting to me and I sat down in front of telly, which I don't usually do in the daytime. And there's a program on about the uh, Berlin Wall falling, or they were talking about it, you know, it was going to happen, you know, they're opening up the borders and kind of like, but it hadn't happened, it was all talk. And I said, that's one country in the travels I went and I never got to, and I would have loved to go to. I was going at one stage, but then made other choices. And I said, now it's the time to go. So I basically went out the next day and bought myself uh, a van. Uh, camper van and I put a few canvases in and some paints and I drove off to Dundee there and got the ferry over to England and drove across England and straight across to the ferry over to France. And, 
And Jared, while you've been doing the, when you've been working as an electrician, had you been painting in your spare time? No. (laughs) Okay. So this was was just, you just, you got this, um, I almost said shock, which would be impolite in the context. Um, You got this scare and it, it brought back this urge to be an artist. Yeah, but I, I always had it in me, you know, it was always kind of like kneeling at me a bit, you know, it was kind of like, you know, I should do it. I, you know, I'd always be kind of, you know, in my travels, I, I, I travel a lot, like, mm-hmm. so in, in that time as, as an electrician, um, I basically, like one, one trip, one of the trips I did, I actually got sponsored by Volkswagen and I got a, a Volkswagen van. I was trying to drive from Ireland to Australia. And um, the Volkswagen system sponsored trip, so I had it off with my friend, who also worked with me in the lighthouse service, and we went to college together. So the two of us, you know, says, "Okay, we do this trip," and uh, we headed off in our van. And that trip, you know, took months to get across, but we ended up in around in Iraq. Got caught up in the war there, so we had to a U-turn and made our way back. I mean, the stories there, you know. You'd be here all day if, if I still want to all that. But, you know, anyway, made, made our way back to, uh, to to Athens and sold a van in Athens. And, uh, you know, which took like six weeks to sell the van alone. And then we had to sell it because we had to get money. And then basically got the, the price for the ticket, flew to Australia. And then, of course, worked on the outback in Australia and done that Australian trip. And then came back from Australia overland. Uh, by train because we hadn't got the van anymore so we made the same trip back by train and made our way back to Dublin it but sounds I, I almost idyllic yeah but I, it, it was strange times so, you know different times nowadays no, you know no internet no no zooms no mm. you know you could get money out of, out of a pass machine it wasn't on the you know it was credit card uh, what you call them checks and all that type of stuff so you know, language barriers that wouldn't be there today, I don't think. So it's a, a, traveling a different world than the world that we know today. So uh, I say in many ways a lot easier now, but certainly not the same experience. Um, and countries that, that have somewhat much influence now by the rest of the world, like, you know, McDonald's and, you know, yeah. Starbucks and wherever else you find them in Moscow, you find them there. There was none of that. You know, the westernization then. of, well, everywhere. Yeah. 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 So I, I, I think... You know, the younger generation are missing out on that. And I miss out now. I miss not seeing that when I travel now. You know, yeah. it's very hard to find a country that is raw still and hasn't been touched by Western ways, or whatever case may be. So, um, so yeah, you know, so I travel the world. So, that, you know, in all that, the, then the art was kind of like something that I really, really want to do. It was niggling at me all the way through my life. And you know, uh, you know, visiting art galleries, any any city I went to. So, getting back to, to, to after the shock, I says, you know, I really wanted to be an artist. Like when I was a kid, and somebody says, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" I would have been an artist. Okay. You know? I was selling pictures when I was. That's the thing I probably should have told you. So my parents really wanted to help me. You know, being from a big family, to single out one child and to give them something different than your business sisters. So I got. Uh, and he's uh, got paints and supplies and all the rest frequently, which was kind of like, oh, why is he getting that? But they, they could see that, that, that I had the potential. And, you know, I, I loved 
I loved to paint. I loved the, the you know the, the, the whole exercise, and it used to calm me and just like I'd be in my own zone. And uh, but when I was at school, uh, you know, you know, when I was fourteen and thirteen. Uh, we had art in school, but the teacher used to say to me, you know, he was a nice teacher. He was a very good artist, and he used to say, Jerry, you know, I can't teach you anything uh, because I have to teach the rest of the class, and uh, you know, they need to know perspective, and you don't, you don't need this. So you just go down the end of the classroom, bring your paints in, and you paint for that time on your own. And you know, I used to do that, and he used to put his head over and say, "Very good, our blue." I never got really any instruction from, which was disappointing. So it was almost yeah. like the education let me down a bit, as much as I got the encouragement. But the um, it sounds know. like he kind of uh, not not quite gave up on you, but thought, "Well, do you know what? He doesn't need me." Yeah, but I can understand where he was coming from. Mm. I and mean, in some ways, I would have preferred if I was in a school. They said, "Oh, this guy needs," you know extra tuition in the sense he's good yeah <laughs> let's let's bring him on to the next level instead of like i was kind of stuck in the, the same level just kind of doing my own thing but it, on another level that kind of left me to the to to my own devices and kind of like to find my own style and to, you know to to just do the things i want to do and i just and i kept that through my life i just you know i, I never took a lesson never read art books you know it was like just basically just Plow my own canoe or wherever my colleague, just going down the stream and you know, life. And, and um, I roll my own canoe, but you know, it's it, it's been good for me in a sense. You know, I, I think it's it's paid off well. Um, but it's there were choices to be made along the way, and I met the right people sometimes. You know, a lot of times it was the right place, the right time, meet the right people too. Yeah. So you have this moment of awakening the light bulb moment that you know a lot of people yeah. dream of having um and you end I, up I had, to, I had to stop you there i think that's that's what's important about today and now at the moment this is that moment for a lot of people yeah yeah absolutely so it's like stop listen look <laughs> it's yeah so you did you travel to Germany then at that stage? Um, yeah. So the, with the van and the, the canvases. Yeah, I went, I went drove to, into Germany through checkpoint, Charlie. Um, scary enough, kind of very brave. I felt I was. It was kind of brave, and um, I don't know what the word might be. Like I was living life. I felt I was like in control of my life again. I was like doing something. I left everything behind, and it was like a new beginning. Is what I'm trying to say. Really. Mm. And into Checkpoint Charlie, but with that kind of new beginning, you're getting out of your comfort zone. You're on your own. It's like, you know, I just don't speak German, you know, and it's it's all scary. Like, you know, I, I remember even going up to, on the motorway, going heading towards, because I'm going into East Berlin. So I'm going through mainland Germany, so to speak. And I have this Volkswagen van that's old, but it's doing the job. And, um, the exhaust hangs down the back and it wasn't making a lot of noise around it was just hanging down and the next thing uh, before I know there's two two police bikes come up one either side of me and pulled me over and they used to say you know it's illegal to have an exhaust hanging down I said I didn't know that so they write they write me a ticket for how, so it was a bit nervy I'm going like Jesus are they going to arrest me or something you know yeah and then they says uh, what's in the van and I says oh just some my art materials and then they says uh, can we have a look so I opened up the van and I had some pictures that I actually did, you know, in the past there with me, just so I bring them along. And they says, uh, 
take them out and I took them out and they put them against the wall or like maybe six, seven pictures and they're looking at them and they're, they're talking about in general about the pictures and what they're saying and they were like, they're good, like that. <laughs> so they tore the ticket up and says, keep on going, you know. <laughs> I said, that's a good start. <laughs> Welcome to Germany. So, yeah, good Germany. So anyway, time goes on. I, I, I drove into Checkpoint Charlie, got through Checkpoint Charlie, a bit of a nerve-wracking. And made my way to this nice part of the city, kind of old, old worldly part. And uh, I says, this looks, you know, interesting. I'll, I'll you know, stay here, park the van, and went about walkabouts and tried to find a coffee shop I liked and says, I'm going to be here for a while. And, you know, feeling comfortable in my skin in a sense and then, uh, then I went out to paint and I was painting I said this is not, not, not really what I expected there's not a lot of colour it was actually a very run down a very dark mm. you know, place and it's kind of like not really what I thought it was going to be like and it was kind of very scary and there was a lot of tension you know there was a lot of military around and just just a weird place so after two weeks of that I said oh this isn't working out for me I'm just not really enjoying it at all I'm feeling very uncomfortable and uh, it was like it, it wasn't like Ireland, since there wasn't pubs in every corner, or good restaurants, or you know, places to kind of meet people. It was kind of very lonely. But it was one one place uh, I used to go to, uh, you know, one bar like a find, uh, and I used to find if I went there, I could probably meet some people. But anyway, um, story goes that I decided I'm going to leave Germany and head back to Dublin. Uh, I had enough of it. I, I was like, this is it. This is typical now. You know, I've made my mind to do this now. It's all over. I'm going to go back. And I'm going to have to ask my, my boss, can I have my job back? And I failed. And where I was so just like, was in a kind of a low low place. Anyway, so I went to the bar. I said, okay, I'm going to go tomorrow morning. Just give it up. Go back. This, this is just not, not for me. And um, anyway, I, I walked to the bar, ordered a drink. And I was only there for about two minutes. And the guy walks in behind me. And he orders a drink, and he heard me ask order in English. And he turns to me, completely stranger, and he says, um, uh, "Do you speak English?" I said, "Yeah." He says, "Do you mind if I practice my English?" He says, "Because they're, they're talking about this wall is coming to come down, and it'd be good to to practice." And mm -hmm. I says, "Far away, you know." And um, he, the first question he asked me was, "What do I do? What do I work at?" And it was the first I ever said it. I says, "I'm an artist." And it was very surreal in some ways, you know, weird, like I'm just said, I'm an artist, you know, that was the first time ever. And he went, oh, it's quite surprised. And, uh, and he says, uh, this, this is weird, weird, he says to me. He says, I don't drink, he says. And I've never been in this bar before. And he says, but I, I left a meeting only 15, 20 minutes ago, he says, and uh, I have to meet, next, and I left it with a question in my head that I have to answer. And he says, I just came in here so I could just get a drink and think about how, how I'm going to answer this question. And the, I said, well, question, he says, uh, I have to find an artist, he says, because we ha I'm part of an underground movement. And he was kind of like, kind of nervous about saying it to me, you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, it's very secretive. And he says, I'm part of an underground movement. And in Berlin, he says, so we're anti-establishment and all the rest. And he says, and we have exhibitions, poetry readings and art exhibitions and film and puppet shows and different things, all anti-establishment, you know, and it's uh, in the arts, basically, you know, everything. And he says, so we have usually an artist who comes from Russia every year, different artists, and they put on exhibition. On. And this year, the artist hasn't arrived because they're afraid he'd defect into the West if the wall is weakened. Yeah. So he hasn't arrived. So we have, we have 
a studio, we have accommodation, and we have some fun for materials, bursary like, and for an artist. And so I have to find one. And when the first person I met, like 15 minutes after meeting, and he says, kind of destiny, you know, it's, yeah, probably so. That's the way my life works. <laughs> Talk about being and, uh, at the right place at the so, right time. So, that's it. So he says to me, um, so do you want to take up this, this offer, you know, of the exhibition and, and the studio and so forth? And I says to him, I says, no, I says, you know, to tell you the truth, I says, I actually decide I'm leaving tomorrow morning. I've had enough here, you know, it's too, too dark and dreary for me. And he says, um, oh, I'm surprised. And he says, so you're, you're saying no to it? And I was like, hmm, him and ha. And he says, well, I thought you said you were an artist. <laughs> I says, fuck it. <laughs> you know, like, there's no going back now. Mm -hmm. So I says, yeah, I guess I, I, I have no options, do I? <laughs> and he goes, no, you don't. <laughs> so, uh, so, he, so anyway, I says, yeah, okay. And then he says, okay, you have to pr promise me something. No, he says. Uh, what's that? And he says, you've got to promise me to spend six months here. And I was like, oh, six weeks would be, would be enough. He goes, what would, you, what would you do in six weeks? You know, it's pint taken. So he says, six months. And I said, that's a tall order. But I ended up staying, the six, I stayed seven months, uh, to be precise. And I, I enjoyed every moment of it. And I, I would say that was probably the best single decision I made in my life. Was yeah. it the making of you as an artist? Yeah, it was definitely. Yeah, a very yeah. difficult place to live at that time. It was, yeah, but it was, it was so interesting in the sense that too, there was so much happening, and there was the the the, the energy and the turbulence of the place, and and the, the interest and the how to say, the interest they had in art too, and the kind of the hunger they had for art, um, and they they just loved it. They, they were, they, 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 it was just part of them as a, as a culture nearly. And it was great to be kind of in the middle of that and, and in the middle of that change that was happening. And I'll give, you an, I'll give you an example of what I mean in the sense of, you know, for me, getting into their psychic in a sense. Um, when, uh, when I had my studio, it was very basic and um, I was painting away and I had my, my accommodation again, very basic, but comfortable. And the, the guy would come around every so often to see how's they getting on. And uh, he... He came around this day and he says, you look a bit thin. And I says, yeah, I, mean, I hadn't been eating really because I was living on overchains dipped in bread and egg. Where else? That was, that was my diet. I ran out of money. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't get it. You know, it wasn't like it was the pass machine and I wasn't going to leave. So I was kind of like, I just live on air kind of thing. So, And anyway, he says, you look a bit hungry. And I was like, oh, I'm all right. And he was saying, okay, I'm going to give you seven addresses. So he wrote down seven addresses, and he says, you start off the top of this list, work your way down, and then go back to the top of the list again. And you go to these people's houses, and they'll feed you. So I was like, didn't want to do it, because I'm kind of humble like that, you know, I said, mm. just do it. So I said, okay. So I went to this first house, knocked the door, they opened up the door, there were family, two or three kids, where else, husband and wife, nice homes, they're all nearly the same, you know, apartments. And I go in, and they feed me, and glass of wine you dare to all hours in the morning sometimes chancellor and they all spoke fairly good english and then i go off to the next house the next house and so forth through the week and then start off again so by the end of six months or five months at that stage i got to know each family individually 
and got to know that all our problems, all our cares. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like their, their counselor, so that you know the husband would leave and the wife would say, "Oh, he's driving me crazy," and those, you know, vice versa. Go like, and then you get into their psyche about like how the changes were for them and what they were experiencing and what they were, what their fears were, and and for me. Uh, to my surprise, I was actually a great tool for them because I was the, the West. I was, was was coming down the tracks for them. I knew everything there was to know for them. I could tell them what it was going to be like. And the one thing I kept on saying to them, because they, they had this thing where all they wanted, every family was the same. They all wanted a microwave, you know, color television. They wanted the best stereos. They wanted the best cars because they couldn't get them. Yeah. It was, it was impossible to buy that stuff. And no matter how much money you had, you couldn't get it. And they, they says, you know, this is what we want. And I kept on saying to them, it's not going to make you happy. It's not going to make you happy. <laughs> but they, but I believe that's where their, their happiness lay in that, you know. The grass is always and, greener. Yeah. So when it, when the wall came down and uh, with my electrical knowledge, I was able to go into the West with them, with a group of people, like, I don't know, 10, 15 people, and pick out the best washing machine and pick out the best telly and pick out this you know, based on wattage and efficiency and whatever else. And they all went home with their machines and they were all delighted, threw the old stuff out the window and literally. And then they called me around to come to visit their houses and I go to visit their houses, which I've been before. And they'd have the telly plugged in, they'd have the washing screen on, they'd have the fridge, everything lined up in front of them in the sitting room. And they look at them. And I could, I'd, take, I'd take me and look at this chair, look at this, look at, look at how this, yeah, that, that's it. And then literally a month later, go around all depressed and all sad. And they were like, you're right. We thought this was going to be his happiness. It didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's life. But anyway, the, getting back to the arts. So I had the exhibition there. And um, there, was, there was an interesting story. Two interesting t- stories happened there. But I don't know how much t- time you have. We're, we're, yeah, we. we yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm here listening yeah. to you, but yes, uh, yeah, we, we are pushing on for time a little bit. But um, one of the yeah. things I wanted to ask you, Jared, because you've become known as an artist who paints outdoors, and then as a result, you're painting in front of an audience, or like the audience of people who pass by. And I'm wondering how how that came about, because not everybody is. Um, well, not all artists, first of all, are keen to show their work in progress. Never mind having the courage to stand outdoors and whoever wants to see and pass comment and mm. just let them at it. Where did that whole thing start? Yeah, that was... Uh, yeah, yeah I, can, I can remember uh, there was, uh, going back in time a bit when I started to actually dabble a bit in the painting. Um after Electric Shock and that, just after I had a show in Berlin and so forth, you know, it, or maybe running up to it, you know, just basically to get out there on the streets and paint. It was, it was a challenge. It was like really difficult to do it. You know, um, I, you know, I, I suppose it was just case, I got to just do, I got to get out there and paint. And I remember uh, getting up in the mornings, you know, summertime, getting up at five o'clock in the morning early and heading out sunrise, you know, full of ambition, full of enthusiasm as a young man. Mm. And I really, really wanted to paint. And nothing could hold me back. And I remember going down to uh, Stevens Green and throwing my easel over the railings and climbing over the railings of Stevens Green 
nearly killing myself in the process more than once. <laughs> and I, I, I felt if I got in there before the crowd, um, I could get something down. And I remember like setting up one, one occasion, and security came around, they go, what the fuck are you doing? Excuse the expression, but what the hell are And I was like, uh, I'm painting. And I, well, you're not supposed to be in here. I said, well, I'm not doing anything. I'm just painting a picture. But you're not supposed to be here. So I have to throw you out, but I don't want to throw you out because you're painting. <laughs> so I said, just pretend you didn't see me. And he goes, yeah, you're standing in the middle of the pathway. How can I say that? <laughs> so anyway, he said, okay, I'll pretend I didn't see you. <laughs> so anyway, he left me too. But I, f I felt if I got something on the canvas before that, before the people came in, I, f I did. It wasn't so embarrassing for me or something. I already know what I was doing. Okay. So I do that a couple of times and get it. But full of full of nerve, like anybody, or full of you know this thing of what they think of me. I look stupid, or you know, uh, I if I'm not good enough and so forth. But I felt I really, really had to do it. And then you know, through time, just painting every day, uh, you know, all the time going out. I. I paint just some of the place I put myself in. I, I go like so bit, really like in London. I just came back from London there about over a year ago, and I'll be painting in Sloan Square or painting in um, you know some of the Oscar Oscar streets, whatever. Just painting like in the middle of this mad busy streets, uh, doing commissions for people, large buildings, and I kind of go like, oh my god, there's so many people around me and the traffic and all the rest, and it, you get into your own head and you almost like become invisible. But what happens is at the end of the painting when you're finished you have to actually nearly come back into your body you know because I've been kind of put myself out there so much I need to come back in and go like hold on I'm going to have to drive a car now I'm going to have to get the tube or whatever mm -hmm. the case might be and kind of come back into myself for you know while, while I was in it I was just closed off everything out there was kind of like on a different level in some ways but I, I suppose uh, at this stage you now of my career um, I I, I guess I'm very used to it. I love it, enjoy it. Um, some of the commissions, though, are challenging. I mean, I got a commission there recently from the British Army, and they wanted me to do a, a scene for them of a parade. And I said, okay, and it's going to be live. And I went, okay, but I didn't. I said yes to everything. And then when I actually came to do it, I went like, hold on, I just say yes to all this. And here I am with this big easel doing this parade, and it's only going to last 15 minutes. <laughs> and I go... I don't know, that's going to work out. <laughs> well, anyway, I, you know, sometimes you just don't think of these. I just thought it'd be stationary for some reason. Yeah, yeah. I could, I could do it. But I, but I went by me and then I went, okay, I got it down. And uh, they, were, they, they were quite happy with, with the commission. So happy days. So, Jared, so, you uh, got quite a lot of media coverage in 2020 because you, you yeah. took this practice of painting outdoors to, well, the confines of your local community. And I think it, it intrigued an awful lot of uh, the residents in, um, I think, the general Dublin 6 area. Talk to me about that. Yeah, it's, strangely enough, I was supposed to, I actually went back to Berlin just before the COVID hit. Okay. I, I, just by chance, I happened to be that the exhibition I had in Berlin, I had in a disused supermarket. And that's, you know, that's they, 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 they took over these disused buildings, corrugated and whatever else, and they revamped them inside and had the big exhibition. So I had a, the exhibition in a disused supermarket. And it just happened to be then a bit of a research, 30 years on, what's that building like and whatever else, and, you know, who's there. And I worked out as an art gallery and a theatre there in that building. Right. So, so, so I must contact them. So I contacted them and they were like, 
oh, we'd love to see you. You know, you, you exhibited back here 30 years ago. Maybe we could do something. So I went over and met them, and they, they says, we'll do an exhibition. So I was supposed to have an exhibition in Berlin uh, 30 years on in the same building, which would have been, would have been nice mm. uh, to think to have. And I was looking forward to it. But then COVID kicked in, and then I was back here in Dublin. And I was like, well, that's not going to happen. And I was really, I was finding the, the, the idea of COVID and, the, you know, just, the concept of it was kind of like I, I'm used to travel like everybody we're used to doing our own thing and here I was I'm not going to be able to do the things I want to do I'm not going to be able to travel you know it's getting in my head I was wrecking my wife and I actually thought like like I'm sure a lot of people do this is going to be worse than we think it is you know that basically yeah. we're going to have to barricade the doors and kind of you know I was thinking about getting a generator getting water you know I was going into you know lockdown mode in my own head like you know getting ready for the worst and uh, I then realized I was scared of my wife. <laughs> so she was like, you're frightening me, Jerry. And I said, okay, you better stop that. And I, I, I cooled the jets a bit, you know. So anyway, I cooled my jets and didn't buy the generator, didn't buy the, the water tanks. And, <laughs> and uh, decided to uh, just concentrate my art and put my head into that. And then I was complaining to my wife, saying, like, oh, there's nothing I can paint, or we're locked down here, and you can't go out the streets. And you know, if I go out the streets, people are going to be going, like, what's he doing there? You know, you know he shouldn't be there. You know, this was going in my head. Yeah. But they wouldn't appreciate me being there. And, you know, it could be a rest or something like that. So anyway, my wife says to me, why don't you get on the roof and paint from the roof? So we on our building here, we have kind of a flat roof. So I said, well, that, that, that's not going to entertain me too much, you know. But anyway, I says, okay, I'll do it. And when I got up um, on the roof, which was, you know, to get a ladder and get up there and all the rest, I got up and it was, the weather was fantastic. There was a great calmness about the place in the sense that the birds were whistling, the sun was shining, there was no traffic on the streets, it was just calm. And I went like, this is new, This is, I haven't experienced this before, you know, this calmness and the birds and no traffic. And before I knew it, it was just like, you know, I was being acknowledged. People could see me on the street from the, the few people that were on the street could see me from the street up onto the roof. And we're kind of waving up and going, how's it going? And and then uh, my wife tweeted out something about it. And before I knew it, it was like people were interested in what was happening, you know, the fact that I was there. And then that kind of gave me some confidence that when we, when when the restrictions start to lift, then you can go outside and then you go up the street in a five, you know, two mm-hmm. almost a two kilometer radius. Where I was, I says, okay, I'm going to go out there. But again, I, you know, here I was. I was supposed to be in Berlin. I was never supposed to be painting the streets around. It never really came in, in, into my head that I would do that because it wouldn't have really have been something I would have done. But here I am with the situation. Why not? Well, I suppose um, I think it's something that we all do. We do tend to take our local surroundings for granted. And it's just, you know, yeah. we go we go somewhere else for work or we do something for work, but we don't necessarily appreciate what's well right under our noses, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, the, the thing about it is that when I when I started to paint, that I realized that there was people had this thing, a need or want, they, they, they were kind of, looking for something in them in themselves like that you know the their 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 clock had stopped here they yeah. were like they don't have to be to work they don't have to be a certain place where else and they got this void and they want to fill it and you know art galleries closed and the you know musicians aren't playing and whatever the case might be and here's me this artist on the street painting a picture and they they, they seem to have got a lot from it it's like one woman came by one day and she says to me oh she said 
you don't know how much this means to me to see you do this. I was like, yeah. She goes, yeah, it just touched nerves. She says, and she says, you put a smile on my face. She says, I haven't had a smile on my face for a long time. She says, thank you. I says, well, that's, that's a big plus, you know, to, yeah. to get that feedback. She goes away and she comes back about an hour later and to see the picture. So I'm going to come back and see the picture finished. And she came back and she brought a friend with her. She says, I brought my friend back for you to put a smile on her, plate, her face too. So the two stayed there for a while. They were laughing and joking. And, whatever else. and that was the kind of the general take of it. Like it was like, you know, I was bringing something to them, either in the sense of culture or art somewhere else. And there was this kind of awakening and, and fondness. And, you know, and I ended up then getting a lot of commissions out of it. So it was actually, I was just, you know, I'm, I'm probably making more money now than I would have if I had gone to Berlin. <laughs> kind of like surreal and Jared I want you to bring you back because you mentioned when Mm. I said um, after the electric shock that you you had that kind of light bulb moment you said that Mm. now is the time for 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 people to have that moment what did you mean by that it was it's just like to me in many ways it's like that was my end in a sense like I'm going to die here and then I, 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 lived, I lived through it. So I, I was still, my feet were on the ground. I was still breathing. I had, you know, I got broken bones. But I had a clarity, and the, the clarity was, don't take life, you know, don't just drift through life, you know. Because we have a tendency to drift through life and just kind of go with the, with, the, with what we're kind of like supposed to do or what we want, we're, you know, our jobs or, you know, we're in a relationship or we're in a case where we just kind of plod through. Mm-hmm. Well, I think now with this kind of like pause, which is the, the, the title of my last exhibition, Pause for Harmony, um, is that basically to stop, uh, which we are forced to stop. So we're forced to stop to, to listen, to see. You know, I see it. Like there was one guy was uh, when I was on the roof, the very first week I was on the roof, and he waves up to me. And I had been on the radio that day talking about, you know, the lockdown and painting it through it and all the rest. And the, the, the RT picked up on it and they were doing an interview. And I was on the radio that morning. And this guy w- w- pulled up on his bike and he had his kid on the back, on his push bike. He had a kid on the back. The kid was only about three, I'd say. And he says, there's the man up on the roof that was on the radio this morning to the kid. And wave, and the kid's waving up and I waving down to him. And he says, keep up the good work. Love it. I says, thanks very much. And I says, isn't it great? I says, to think that you're spending that time with your son. And he says to me, you know, you're right. He says, I, I have my own company. He says, and I'd be so busy. He says, I wouldn't see the uncle from one hour of the day to the next. He said, I come home, he'd be in bed. And he says, in the time that I've spent with him, which is the last couple of months, he says, he's talking. He's like, he's become so more alert, he says, with me in his life. He says, it's unbelievable. And mm. I says, well, these are the, the things that you know we sometimes just let slip by us you know our children not, not spending time with them because we're too busy and you know uh, you know i suppose like that uh, he says to me oh, oh, we're going now we have to go we're going off to see the, duck, the duckies we're going to feed the duckies you know and i says just remember i says you're seeing the duckies too and he says you're right <laughs> you know so that's 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 just all like in a sense of you know people i see it you know you you see people walking down with their friends. You see them, you know, out enjoying. I went to the beach this morning for a walk. The crowds that were there, the social distancing, of course, big, big, big beach down in Sandy Mount there. 
and uh, you know, lots of people out walking their dogs. You would never see that. I mean, I used to be out painting in on the streets for years, and you'd go to the beach, there'd be no one around, mm-hmm. every reason work. So the, I, I think people are are putting themselves out there more, enjoying life on a different level. And sometimes it's not always about having, you know, the latest car or the biggest house or the, the nicest furniture. Sometimes it's a case of, you know, having quality time with friends or family or just enjoying your own space in your head. And, you know, I think there's so many people now that are actually doing art and writing that book they never wrote or wants to read or doing podcasts or whatever the case might be. Or, you know, just, I, you know, I hear it. People are, I got lots of emails saying, oh, I decided to take up art. Can you give me any hints, you know? And uh, one of the hints I say to them, don't go into art if you think you're going to get money on it because then you're going at the wrong angle, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, if you make money, that's a plus, but really art is about art. <laughs> yeah. Do you think, Jared? like I know, I think I think you've, you've hit a point there where I think an awful lot of people have taken up different practices, whether that be going for a walk on their own or with the family or the dog or, or maybe taking up something creative. And... I wonder, you know, because it's been such a long period of time where people have now taken whatever it is that they've taken up, it's now become part of their daily lives. Do you think will that kind of, I don't know, is it mindfulness or a reflectiveness or a new attitude? Do you think that will stick with us as we begin, hopefully, at some point this year, getting to a... Well, maybe not back to normal, but to less restrictive lifestyles. I don't think, well, I think I'd like to think that the people that took up the brush or took up the pen or wherever it might be, or the, the guitar or singing or whatever the case might be in the arts, that they, they, they go on with their passion. Because I think that's, that's, a, that's something that, you know, when you, on your deathbed, if you didn't do it, you'd be saying, I should have done. Mm. So I think it's important to do that and keep it going. But I also think that it'll never be the same in my head. We'll never get back to the way it was because when you get a taste of something else, that itself will make it make a difference. I mean, I, we used to look outside the gallery here, the window of the gallery here in Randall, and most evenings from about four o'clock onwards to the clearway. And by you know six o'clock, there'd be bumper to bumper. And I used to look out the window and go like, are people crazy or something like that? They never move. They just yeah. like inch up the road to the lights. And the same every day. Saturday, Sunday would be a bit quieter. But every day to be there, and I go like, that, I would hate that life. And there's people out there that were in those cars that aren't in them anymore. And I don't think they'll ever go back to that situation again because they, they, they've got a taste of something else. So I don't think it'll ever be the same again. It'll be similar, but not the same. And I think that's probably a good thing. Well, Jared Byrne, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. And I'm going to end our conversation by asking you a question that I ask all of my guests here on the Ireland Creates podcast. One of the things that I love about your work is that within each painting, within each piece of work, there is a clear um, narrative, a story to be told. And I'm wondering, as someone who is a very good storyteller, what does storytelling mean to you? Storytelling means to me. Um, we, well, if, if we're looking at a painting as different as opposed to telling a story, um, a painting has probably something hidden that 
no one can put words on because it's visual. Um, so I would think that a good painting actually has a story hidden in it that you can't actually see it when you when you look at it. You can't read it through the through the paint. It's actually it's the energy. Like I would say that the, my my lifetime experience, my the things I've all the way through my life, especially as an artist, all you know, all that collective energy will go into a piece of work. So really, what you're looking at is all that energy. You're not looking at a picture of a house or a picture of a seascape or whatever the case might be. The picture's about it's it's a collective energy gone into that picture. Sounds a bit weird, but that's that's it. And you know, I've I've seen people look at pictures and get emotional, and they go, "I don't know why I feel so emotional about this picture." And they go, "Because it's just of a building, or it's this." And I go, "No, it's the collective energy. It's that. It's the energy of what's around me when I'm painting the buildings, the people, the places." And that's that's what I would think is what uh, makes a good painting towards a bad painting or a, an artist that has the ability to touch a nerve, whether it's through poetry or music, where case maybe. I mean, I've listened to poems from many different languages, again, emotional about them, and I go, I don't understand a word that, but the poem is emotional, or a bit of music, classical music, that I go, I don't know what that's about, opera or something, but I get an emotion from it. And it's that collective energy. So that's the story in the painting. <laughs> Well, Jared Byrne, as I say, it's been an absolute pleasure. I could talk to you all day. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Jared, if people would like to take a look at your work, how can they find you? Uh, it's uh, Jared Byrne Artist uh, is dot com um, is actually um, my website. So you can see a lot of work now. We have a virtual tour, uh, 360 degree tour, two of them. Um, two exhibitions up there so you can have a look at them online um, there's plenty of, plenty of stuff to look anyway so I say you can google Jerry Bourne artist you'll find me Thanks again to Jared Byrne for being so generous with his time. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Ireland Creates. If you'd like to get involved, please do get in touch via my website, ashleyorourke.com. And of course, please do consider becoming a patron via patreon.com forward slash Ireland Creates. That's it for this week. I'll be back next week with another episode of Ireland Creates. In the meantime, take care and remember to share your story.